Welcome to Ancient Answers, where we discuss our modern controversial issues with reflections to the past and how the ancients dealt with things. I'm Gordon. And I'm Shane. And today we're going to be discussing some biographies, or as we like to say, people we like to sit down and have a drink with and ask them <laughs> questions. Yep. And uh, Shane, you're going to go first, I, okay. I think, right? Sure, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, who have you picked? So, uh, I have selected Philip II, oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Philip, also known as Philip of Macedon, or as more people might be familiar, the father of Alexander the Great. That's right, Alexander's dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, the reason why I, I picked Philip of Macedon is that just about everyone knows who Alexander the Great was. You know, they... They hear the name, that's it, true. Exactly, right? I mean, if nothing else, there was the Oliver Stone film from 2003, I think it was. Um, uh, but just about everyone has heard of Alexander the Great and has an idea of his conquests and his empire and whatnot. But uh, his father, Philip, is not nearly as well known of a figure. He's very much overshadowed by the accomplishment. Realize as a result of that is that a lot of the tactics and the things that Alexander utilized to such great success were based on military reforms and, and basically Philip set the stage. You know, he laid all the groundwork and, and constructed the foundation upon which Alexander built his great empire. Uh, so that's why I decided to talk about Philip. So while talking about Philip, uh, I sort of decided to break it up into two very broad categories. Uh, so one was the militaristic side, because he did do a lot of military reforms. That's, that's true, yeah. Uh, and then the other so. one is the diplomatic side. So, which is less known. Yeah. But you're right. As you were briefing me before we started recording... Uh, I, I actually was quite amazed because in some ways, going back to the Oliver Stone movie, which I actually quite liked, especially the redux, like when it was re-edited, um, Philip, played by... Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer, comes across as a little bit of a nutcase, yeah. at least my perception. And yet, I don't think that that is a fair representation. Maybe later in his life, mm -hmm. but certainly he could not have achieved what he did achieve if he hadn't had a some sensibility to him. It's it's funny you, you say that, actually, because I, I heard the same thing and, and read about that as well, where there seemed to be this duality, almost, to his, uh, his personality, where, on the one side, he was looked at a pretty brutish barbarian by Greek standards, where he was... He was aggressive and he was loud and he was obnoxious. <laughs> but the Greeks thought anybody exactly, that they yes. were barbarians, <laughs> even fellow Greeks. Yeah, exactly, right? So take that with a grain of salt. But uh, it's suspected that he was an alcoholic and he did have a rather, again, we'll, we'll say obnoxious side of him, let's say. Uh, but then there's other differing records where they talk about the fact that he was a brilliant, charming negotiator, and he was such a shrewd diplomat, and he was so good at mollifying different sides and arbitrating diff different disputes and whatnot. So it's, it's two very different views. That's right. Views. As the Greeks say, he had words of honey. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so to so start with the military reforms, um, he made some changes, some drastic changes to the Macedonian army. Now, at this point in history, Macedon had been, or Macedonia, had been racked by strife and civil wars, and there had been raids from the Illyrians in the northwest and uh, yeah. Thracians in the east, and so they were. It was a mess. There was all kinds of battles of succession and civil strife. Uh, it was a huge mess that Philip inherited. So when he started his military reforms, he took this ragtag, useless army essentially that had just been decimated in the previous decades, and he gave them new kit, new outfits. So 
first thing he did, the most well-known, is the Sarissa. So the traditional hoplite spear that you see in like 300 in the traditional kind of Greek, um, Greek military was eight feet long. Well, the, spear, the Sarissa spear that he introduced was four to six meters. So drastically longer, uh, iron tip at the one end and a bronze or iron butt at the other. So oh, that I you see. Could, yeah, so you could actually balance it. The balancing point was at the three-quarter mark from the front of the spear. Oh. So you're holding it very much towards the end, and it was still very well balanced because of the butt on the far side. You know something? I've seen pictures, and I never made the connection that that was why they put the weight at the back. That's that why, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, because it creates a balancing point. The fulcrum is for, moves further away from the, the front end where the, the spear tip is. Uh, but it also made it easier to ground the back end of the spear into the earth to um, stand up against charging cavalry. Okay, so when you line up all these soldiers holding these spears, three or four uh, sticking out in sort mm. of a progression, that is like an enormous hedgehog. Oh, yeah, that's that's exactly it. The, the lines at the back would keep, because the, how deep was it? I think it was eight... Or it was the formation was sixteen men deep and eight across. That was a locos, it was referred to. Um, so that was a, a unit of one hundred and twenty-eight men. So that was your oh, again was your, your 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 individual unit. Right. And so the the ranks at the back would keep their spears vertical, and then those in the middle would actually hold them forward at a forty-five degree angle. And this actually helped to reduce the projectiles that were coming in on the soldiers because now there's this shield of wood and iron out over the heads of the soldiers so the arrows are kind of deflecting off and not as many are getting through but then the first four or five ranks are holding their spears forward so that by the time the enemy soldiers meet the front ranks of the macedonian phalanx they've had to go through four rows of wood and iron to get there it was a devastating formation it was absolutely earth shattering and uh, it did have its vulnerabilities. It was vulnerable to like, if it was broken up, if the formation was shattered, they were they would be decimated. They had trouble on uneven terrain, um, but Philip actually tried very hard to reduce those vulnerabilities by just training the heck out of the guys, out of the soldiers. So so they would be drilled and drilled and oh yeah, and, and that, and was that a discipline big created a, yeah. When you think about it, to up until that time in history, that would have been a remarkable. Um, example of discipline yeah and and that because remember this is a time where we didn't have professional soldiers these were farmers and craftsmen and tradesmen who then would be called on to fight in times of war so you just kind of had to do the best you can with what you had um, but he sort of ratcheted up the intensity a little bit and and he had much more formalized training regiments for these soldiers so uh, I mean to, to handle a spear that's four to six meters long i mean that's that's no mean feat that's going to take some practice and some work especially to do it in coordination with 127 other people in your unit so uh so yeah that was that's in essence the military reforms that philip had put through uh creating the macedonian phalanx that alexander would then go on to use to massive effect uh, when he was battling in, in Persia and in India and whatnot, moving further east. That's true. I mean, Alexander, who, I mean, was right... Although the relationship with him and Philip seems to have been a little problematic. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's right. Alexander would have inherited all those hard-working reforms that were hard-wrought reforms that were, were there um, with the Macedonians feeling uh, enlightened Maybe not the right word, but invigorated. There you go. Word. That's a good word. Yep. Invigorated. 
by the success that they did see. And you're right. What is overlooked is Philip's skill as a negotiator. Yeah, and, and that's because uh, Alex, Alexander not only inherited the military reforms that Philip had put through, but he also inherited what was essentially a unified Greece that Philip had... as. For, for He had essentially conquered Greece by the time he died. Well, you know, the four generals that f are famous because after Alexander dies, mm. his empire is divided into four, yep. particularly like Seleucid and, and, uh, and uh, Ptolemy and so on. They were older than Alexander. They were, yeah. We forget that he was older. They had been subject to Philip's training. Yep. So they brought that skill, and, and they were remarkable uh, men, actually Really, all his generals seem to have been just remarkably well-trained. Yeah, they were. And, and although Alexander did go on the world of conquest, never went losing a battle, which yes. is kind of what he's known for, he wasn't a violent, as violent as people may think. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have uh, uh, you know, conquered people, yeah, but he wasn't there to extract excessive slavery. Mm -hmm. um, when he did take over the Persian Empire, you know, he kind of embraced their culture. Yeah, he, he, he was, was criticized, criticized for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but maybe that was something that Philip. Uh, we don't know. We don't really have any, but we we understand that Philip was a listener because mm -hmm. on diplomats, uh, you know, the, the comment is that he would listen, then he would counter back, and that he would work out. You know the words of honey. Yep. Uh, that usually means that somehow someone who understood, okay, let's let's work out a deal here. Well, and and now that you say that, there's a quote from uh, Polyanus, who is a he was a, a politician at the time, and he actually said Philip always responded positively to requests for aid. When he won, he did not exile the losers, take away their arms, or knock down their walls. He supported rather than destroyed factions. He took care of the weak, brought down the more powerful was a friend of the people, and cultivated the popular leaders. By these stratagems, Philip mastered Thessaly, not by arms. Well, that is a remarkable testimony to somebody who we may normally just think is some military conqueror, but someone mm -hmm. who had a, a little bit different objectives and ideals. And that is reflected in Alexander. Yeah, it absolutely is. Alexander, I think, took those lessons to heart very much, because we see this similar sort of thing when he does conquer Persia, where, again, he... He embraces Persian culture and he starts to adopt Persian dress and he encourages his his soldiers and his generals to actually uh, mingle and marry with the local Persian populace and whatnot. So yeah, Philip Philip was he was a fascinating character and he he like I said he essentially conquered Greece through mostly negotiating tactics. I mean he made himself available as an arbiter and as a neutral party in all kinds of different military engagements and he was able to flex the Macedonian muscles and through step by step he conquered all of Greece well that that would make him somebody in spite of the portrayal that was chosen by Val Cameron I'm not faulting it's mm -hmm. his way to do it. Philip might have been one of those guys you want to sit down uh, on a on a, a you know in a park not park, you know, on a on a dock. There we go. Okay, on there a dock you. on a lake. <laughs> have sitting a on a dock in the bay. It's <laughs> dock in a bay, and sit there and say, "So, Philip, tell me about your life." Yeah, <laughs> I would like to ask him how he feels about uh, the conquest of his son, about the oh, successes of, of Alexander. Yeah. I would love to get his opinion. What do you think of your boy? Alexander did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> your boy did well. Yeah, yeah, but the problem is, didn't, didn't. Sorry, he didn't. Uh, 
And then last past 33. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, yeah, Philip was assassinated by one of his own bodyguards very surprisingly. Which is why. We, the historians don't know. Yeah, we don't know. What, we don't what really the reason know was. Well, it's, it's such a, it was such a weird scenario, too, because it was the day after Philip's daughter's wedding. And he was, you know, he was a bit of a, he, he, he enjoyed the theater. He liked a spectacle. And so he was walking out into an amphitheater to the, adulation of the crowd and the and their adoration and he actually told one of his bodyguards to stand back because he wanted to show them i'm not some tyrant who's afraid of getting a knife in the back everywhere like i can stand among oh my boy, people bad timing and then he was immediately killed by another one of his bodyguards yeah <laughs> one of, that's a mystery in history it is yeah that we don't uh either, there doesn't seem to be any written record of his why he died yeah there's no real motivation but i mean he sure i'm sure he you know he burned a few bridges along along the way you don't conquer all of greece and you know pacify the illyrians and conquer thrace and whatnot without making a few enemies that's but, right that's right but still it was he's, he's a fascinating character so i uh the channel kings and generals on youtube has mm -hmm. a couple of really good videos that's about right. macedon or macedonia before Philip, Philip's reign, and then Alexander's conquest as well. So those are good resources to check out. Um, yeah, he's a neat character. Good, good, yeah. good. That so was who, good. Who do you have for well, us, Gordon? Well, I, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, I, I picked Constantine, or also known as Constantine the Great. Yes. Uh, uh, Flavius Valerius Constantinus oh. is his Roman name. Romans and their names. Well, <laughs> his dad was Constantine. His two of his son was Constantine. His two of his grandsons were Constantine. And then uh, uh, eleven rulers of the Byzantium Empire that came later were named Constantinus. So the name <laughs> eh, has stuck around. However, uh, I would, I would love to sit down and have a chance to talk with him. He is such a character. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to do my best to cover things in the, you know, this episode here, but there are entire two-hour documentaries about him. His oh. life was so immensely complicated. Yeah. Uh, some highlights. Uh, one is his unique relationship with his mother, which is a transformative event within uh, religion, Catholicism in particular. Um, the fact that he was able to reunite an empire that had been administratively split up by his predecessor Diocletian, um, the the fact that he introduced Christianity in a more official way is literally world-changing yeah. event. I don't know whether he had any foresight to get an idea that that act, which he saw, most scholars believe, was to be a uniting act amongst Romans. Uh, would have transformative effect around the world. Mm -hmm. Literally, yeah. Christianity's origins, uh, by all real, you know, realistic account, uh, were spurred by that. And, be, and there's always thought, well, there was Christians before Constantine, because you know he he was born around the year um, 270. Believe it or not, we don't know his exact date. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that, actually. That's interesting. Romans are good record keepers, and mm -hmm. Roman emperors are especially well that's, recorded. That's true. Uh, he was born in uh, Nicias, now Nice, uh, in um, Serbia. So his father was on campaign, mm -hmm. uh, met his mother, Helena, and uh, now he his father eventually, who is himself is an interesting character. Okay, yeah. Uh, Constantine's uh, Clorius, which means the green... Oh, I figure that out. Uh, yeah, he didn't have that name during his life, but his father went by Constantinus. Um, 
I'll come back to his mom because there, it's uh, Constantine's mom it plays a much bigger role later on, but then moved around. He was a military companion, commander. Then when uh, Diocletian decided to split the empire up, shortly afterwards, uh, Constantinus, Constantine's father, mm -hmm. was appointed the Caesar or the second in command of the Western Empire. Okay. And he ended up relocating to England, yep. uh, Britannia at the time. Uh, to deal with a, a little rebellion that was going up in the north part of the island when he suddenly died in 306. Yeah, in modern-day York, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can never pronounce the name of York's name. Iborakum? Iborakum. I, I don't know where the emphasis is on that word. But <laughs> but the remarkable thing was Constantine was quite a young man. He would have been, at that time, 36. Uh, and... Although he was remarkable. He had spent time in different courts. He had been educated in different places. The interesting thing we realize is that he was educated by a Christian a scholar. Uh, let me just find the name here. Uh, I have to make sure I pronounce it right. Lacinius. And oh, that, yep. that may have had a much bigger effect. Because somewhere in the point, we don't know whether his mom was born Christian or converted to Christianity. That is still actually not 100% known. But certainly his primary education, as influential as he was by his teacher Licinius, as Alexander was influenced by Aristotle, Aristotle yeah. uh, the Christian overview that would have come in uh, would have had an effect on Constantine, although we have no evidence that he reflected Christian values at that time. Okay. But six years later, when he was fighting Maxinius for control of the Western Empire in its totalitarian, and the famous Battle of the Mil uh, uh, Milvian Bridge, Milvian Bri Bridge. This is this transformative event where he claims that he saw a vision that in the sky, the symbol of Christ appeared, the X and the P interpolated, mm -hmm. uh, and he was commanded to have all his soldiers paint this on their shields. Now, he was outnumbered nearly th one to three. Oh, wow. Yeah, Maxanius's army. He was right near Rome. I mean, he had oh. all those resources. Um, and the Millennium Bridge... Uh, sorry, I never pronounce it right. Mulvian Mul Bridge, uh, which is just north of Rome. Uh, it, it was a battle where, you know, Maxanius had been an emperor or leader of Roman leader for 30 years. Oh, really? There was no neophyte. Oh, geez. How did he screw up? He had won a series of battles before he was a successful general. How did he screw this up? By launching his men over a bridge that was being protected by a smaller force. It was almost like a bridge version of Thermopylae. Yeah. And anyways, he loses, and and, and Rome now falls to to uh, Constantine. We, we do see battles at bridges being pretty interesting affairs all over human are. history. So. And then Constantine had the, kind of a, the change of mind about Rome and this is an unknown factor but he decides I don't want to live in Rome. I don't care that Rome was the capital of the empire but I don't want it to be the capital of empire anymore. Mm -hmm. So then he relocated to a series of communities up in the north, Ravenna kind of being the, the best known. But that's what scholars think was getting him thinking the idea is, okay, maybe the administration of the empire does need more help. Okay. But I'm going to be the number one, and I'm going to figure that out. 
So that's when he began the campaign against the Eastern uh, Caesar and Augustus. Mm -hmm. And that took another 12 years until 324. So he wasn't the complete emperor of Rome until 324, starting in 306. Okay. So that that's a long time. That's 18 years of campaigning. 18 years of campaigning. Uh, Again, he inspired his troops to be Christian, that there was a, a one overall God that was going to protect them and give them victory, and he achieved victory. He didn't win every battle, but he won the two most important ones. And in a sense, to the soldiers of the losing side, mm. the fact that these armies were winning because Christ Christos mm-hmm. was protecting them may have given fear to the losing side of the Romans, kind of going, well, then why are we losing if we have more numbers? Wow. And so that's an interesting twist of history. That, that's a very big ideological shift right there. That's right. And uh, the final, the battle of Christopolis, which was the final battle against uh, the, the Eastern Empire forces, uh, Constantine becomes the supreme emperor again, like Diocletian had been in the beginning of his reign 38 years before, he becomes then this unifying emperor. Mm-hmm. And he's got Christianity as one of his unifying forces. Yeah, And so he was very happy, very quickly. I mean, 324 is when he wins. 325 is when he has the Council of Nicaea. Okay. And suddenly, <clears throat> what we would say, the basic orthodoxy of, of Catholicism is established. I mean, there's a few more councils that came later and fine-tuning things during his time. But the Council of Nicaea is the fundamental Roman Catholic council that gets the doctrine of the Trinity and stuff going. Okay. And that becomes a unifying belief. So Mithra is out the door. Uh, Saturnalia is out the door. Mm. Uh, We have to remember that Arianism, which was a version of Christianity, and Gnosticism, which were major religious movements, in fact, they were larger than Christianity at times, they would become heresies because they're competing ideological packages of of thoughts. But, you know, the remarkable thing is Constantine defeated six other imperial leaders to become the supreme emperor. I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not know that, yeah. There's a list there. Oh, and, and And so his military conquests are absolutely remarkable. He's he's a character that I never really studied much in, in history. My education on Roman Empire and Republic took, was more about the transition from one to the other. The only thing I really knew about Constantine the Great was that he was the first truly Christian emperor of Rome. So this, this is all very new information. But the fact that he de- defeated six other rulers... Just on the conquest alone, had he yeah. not embraced Christianity, would have put him in the top three, at least of Roman leaders for their successes. Wow. He was equal to Rome uh, to Julius Caesar. Holy, that's crazy. <laughs> then the fact that he embedded Christianity as part of the ideology, yeah. which we know is, you know, two billion Christians today. Yeah. Um, the the ideology. This may be worth another discussion, but. He gave hope to the average slave, even slave uh, Roman, that if you are good and behave yourself in this life, you will be rewarded in the other life. That's what Christianity could offer people then. It didn't help that the empire would crumble for various reasons. That's not the only reason. Yeah, of course. But he did reform the money. 
Yeah, we talked a bit about that in our in he our did. episode about money. Yes. And it was a very valiant effort to reform the money so there would be fairness to that. Uh, he was, uh, if I was to commend him for things, I would uh, say two things. One, he entrusted his mother to go around and find relics, mm. which was an embodiment of the Christian faith and and in healing, the idea that if you touched a relic, you could be healed and stuff okay, like yep. that, and stories like that, and sainthood. Eventually, his mom was made a saint. Oh. So, you know, Saint Helena. Uh, and so that has a, uh, that carries weight all through the centuries since then. Mm-hmm. But I would admire and sit down with him and say, we know he wasn't the nicest personality. Mm-hmm. Most leaders are not. No. But he was resourceful. Yeah, you have to fair, credit yeah. he was resourceful. He was... Um, he was well spoken. Okay. Uh, although his mom was Greek, and he was raised in sometimes in some Greek environments, he seemed to not be able to speak Greek very well. He always had to have an interpreter. Oh. But he spoke Roman, uh, Latin, sorry, Latin, <laughs> so f- eloquently and forcefully that soldiers and other writers report that they were enthralled listening to him. I love that the idea of because because Greeks really pushed the whole idea of being of being excellent orators and being oh, charismatic yeah, exactly. leaders, right? And I love how that was adapted by the Romans, and we see that moving forward from you know let's say three hundred during the Golden Age or the classical period of Greece, so like three hundred BCE, all the way through for another thousand years or so. That idea of being a good leader comes from being charismatic, and and that comes from just being able to speak properly and elegantly yeah because he had to keep his soldiers motivated yeah he had to keep crowds motivated and he knew how to play the games he knew how to like he everything about his ability to tackle political issues was driven by brilliance now he also did something important Mm -hmm. and it's overlooked he wasn't alone okay we know from the historical record that he selected very good counsel oh yeah he had excellent counsel uh, and the, and there's a little bit of religious zeal in there as well, mm-hmm. and so the, the there was this thought amongst several of, of the surviving writers who were his counsel counsel of some type that uh, you know give the people what they want and they will love you. Yeah. Now that sounds self-serving, but it was a way. Don't punish the people and terrify them into abhorrence. Make them love you, and you will have more peace. Yeah, Phil, that's reminiscent of Philip Macedon right there actually so that's my thoughts I I found in in my part uh, sort of researching about Constantine is I I know there are some novels that are out there that have been written that sort of give a fictionalized history of him and it fascinates me what it would be like to read different modern authors interpretation of what is an unbelievably complex story Mm -hmm. even reading through anybody who would even look at something like Wikipedia realizes that uh, I happened to print it out in a hard copy just to get an idea. Was it 38 pages? Oh, jeez! And that's from a Wikipedia uh, things. So there are entire literature and books, as he is the pivotally the most important single person of the second half of the Roman Empire, because without him and what three things he did. Where would the future have gone? Yeah. If Christian had not taken off, where would that have gone? Yeah. The fact that he brought the empire back together. Now, it didn't last as long as probably anybody thought. Mm-hmm. But the Byzantium oh, that, lasted well, that carried 1,200 on for, more years. Yeah, I was going to say, it carried on forever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
and and the, and the foundations of its administration were set up by his reforms yeah. that carried over. Hmm. So there's where I go. So there's uh, there's our, our biography yeah. episode. I, I got to say, there's I as much as I, I admire Constantine, I am going to give him a hard time for getting rid of Saturnalia because because <laughs> what what a lot of people here might not realize is that like we celebrate Christmas or it's a traditional Christian holiday, but what a lot of people don't realize is that that time of the year has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. That was when Saturnalia, a pagan festival, took place, and Christians basically went, oh, we happen to have a celebration happening at the same time. Let's and just it swap. To, and use it to co-op people in Christianity. But imagine Christmas, but the sex, drugs, and rock and roll version. That was Saturnalia. So come on, man, you ruined everything. <laughs> Damn you, Constantine. Constantine the okay. You made Christmas uh, a holy holiday. <laughs> Took all the fun right out of it. Oh, that's I didn't know that. That's true. That was yeah. Saturnalia. Yep. Yeah. Well, all right, Shane. I think yep. we've had a good episode. I yep. hope our listeners uh, enjoy this. Uh, we encourage you to check us out on social media. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're gonna on, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, and uh, we're I'm, we said this. We've said this a lot this season, but uh, probably for. Season three, we're actually going to be going on to YouTube as well and doing videos yep. uh, as well as uh, audio episodes. Yeah, we've got uh, two more episodes. We're going to do another Q&A, and then we've got a wrap-up episode, a retroflective on episode, sorry, season two, and that'll come up shortly, and we thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. I'm Gordon. And I'm Shane. And thank you for listening to another episode of Ancient Answers. <laughs>